As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I have used Section 8 to actually drive some of my rents where I couldn't get the rent that I wanted. I could get it from Section 8. And so that set a new bar. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure. Free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name. Episode 565 titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Kurt Bidwell. How you doing, Kurt? Hey, I'm doing great today. Thanks. Nice to have you on the show. Looking forward to digging in a little bit about Kurt. He's a managing partner at Phila Holding Company. Started in real estate in 1990 with three partners and a fourplex while serving as a full-time youth pastor. 
And over 26 years, he has bought out each partner and accumulated several single-family homes, duplexes, a 10- and 24-unit apartment, and a 42-unit mixed-use building. So with that being said, Kurt, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, we began back in 1990, so we've been at it for a while. I started with three friends and a fourplex, didn't really know what I didn't know. And so, you know, over the years, we thought we'd accumulate a few things, eventually pay them off. Someday we'd have a little money out of it. But uh, as time went on, actually about 10, 12 years, uh, one of the partners moved out of the area. We bought him out. And I was uh, looking at my own finances and saying, what do I need to retire? And I thought, well, we've got these 10 units. If we had those paid off, I could have maybe four more units. So maybe two more duplexes. So I, I went hunting for some units. I ran into a, an agent that had a broad range of experience in rentals, in uh, marketing and various aspects of construction. And so she put together a, a, an exchange for us where we got rid of our old two bedroom, one bath units. And we 1031, we exchanged into 13 new construction, single family duplexes, going from the little two ones to three and four bedroom, two and a half baths. We had a little 685 rents. We were instantly up to 1150. We went from low and no income clients to state workers, military families, attorneys, real estate agents, other gainfully employed residents. What was the exchange between what to what? We went from 10 two bedroom, one bath units to 13 brand new construction. Some That was a mix of single family, some duplexes, we had three and four bedroom units and, uh, you know, the trajectory of growth and expansion was new to our just whole way of thinking. And uh, we began to get some new information, how we could finance these things and actually have cash flow immediately rather than waiting for 15 or 20 years to pay them off and, and have some, some resources. So we continued to grow. Today, I have 87 units and, uh, and a property that I'm working on a short plat. You've got to educate me. You said a short plat. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, a short plat is when you take a property and in our area, you can divide it up to four total uh, building sites. A full plat would be anything above that. And so uh, for a reasonable cost, relatively speaking, you can uh, you know, have your engineering and uh, you know, your site work done and submit that to the city and uh, get approval to, to have multiple building sites. Of course, depending on, uh, you know, how your area is, um, you know, the type of construction they allow in that area. Basically, you have a piece of land and you're dividing it up into four sections to build four separate, to build four separate things? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. basically it. What are you building? Uh, I hope not to actually build my... <laughs> Smart. <laughs> I, I want to get them planned and move on. I bought this property 13 years ago for some good friends. Um, had a, a nice house on it, Cedar Home. Had a large uh, shop attached to it, and it was just perfectly well suited to their needs and their business. And unfortunately, life didn't turn out well for them. And instead of them buying the home from us, they went their separate ways. They each packed a suitcase and left us with a hoarder's house. And uh, so we have spent quite a bit of time cleaning up the yard, cleaning up the basement, uh, cleaning out the house, doing a remodel inside, and then uh, 
concurrent with that working on the uh, on the short plat. So hopefully the completion of the house will be ready to sell the house at similar time as the plat finishes. Mm. All right. Now let's back up a little bit. You did the the 10 two bedroom one bath units to 13 new construction. How are you able to do that because the rents you said you said were so much greater on the new stuff? Did you put more money into the acquisition of these new properties? We did. We did a 1031 exchange and we had held those 10 units for in excess of 10 years. And so we had accumulated quite a bit of equity. And so when we did the exchange, we put, I have to go back. This is 2003, 2004. And our market was just tearing it up. We were, things were growing fast, selling fast. And so, um, we were able to take that equity and put it into those other units. And we did a lot of 80, 10, tens. We put 10% down, took a 10% second and an 80% first. I'm not sure that that's completely doable in today's <laughs> climate, but uh, we actually, within nine months, were refinancing some of those pieces that we had just purchased and pulling money out to go buy more stuff. So we were highly leveraged. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that level of leverage today, but it did work out for us at the time. And uh, we were able to get into some newer, nicer properties, a whole different clientele. And and that's something I think listeners would appreciate knowing is there is a rental market at every socioeconomic level of society. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether they're a, you know, a three or $400 studio or a $10,000 a month luxury home, there's a market there. Don't be afraid of it. What market do you focus on? I have a couple of markets. Uh, I have apartments, and so most of my apartments are two-bedroom, one-bath. We have student clientele. I do uh, cater to some Section 8 uh, subsidized housing. And then I've got uh, three- and four-bedroom homes in nice neighborhoods. Like I said, we've got uh, professionals, uh, state workers, military families, uh, just a variety of, of folks. And they're, they're paying in that 1500 range, you know, 14 to 1800 for those homes. Whereas our two bedrooms are in that nine to 900 to a thousand range. Talk to us about section eight pros and cons. Oh, wow. It depends on who you are and what your tolerance level is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, please, hey, please educate. Well, Section 8, of course, is a government program. It's income-based, and so there are project-based and there are uh, coupon-based programs. If you have a project-based, your whole complex will be Section 8. Everybody in it, they have to qualify. I do not do that. I do the coupon-based, so somebody uh, has the benefit, and they come to me and they say, well, you accept Section 8 for this unit. And, you know, I I have kind of a percentage that I work with around our complex, but, um, what is it? Uh, roughly 30%. And how'd you come up with 30? Um, it's just my own preference. Quite honestly, I, I allow about 30% section eight. I allow up to about 30% student population and the rest of it is open market. And why not 80% section eight? Um, I, I like the dynamic of a mix, uh, different uh, people, uh, different needs, and I don't want everybody there being subject to government subsidy. I don't want to be fully obligated to that and dependent on that. 
And so uh, for us, that's worked out pretty well. And we have a good mix of tenants. They tend to get along pretty well. And so uh, it, it's worked out for us. And that's just how I do it. Now, just to, to go uh, maybe more specific in the Section 8 pros and cons, what would you say are the three reasons or fewer that you do it and then for three reasons or fewer that you uh, wouldn't do it more? The most obvious is your rent is predominantly guaranteed. Uh, it's it's income-based, so every tenant is going to have a different percentage that they're obligated to pay, not a, a percentage of the rent. It's based on a percentage of their income. But I, I have had tenants who pay 8 to $10 a month, and the government's paying the whole balance. I have others who are paying all but maybe 100 or $200 of it. And so it's a huge range depending on their income and needs at the point they qualify, and then they adjust uh, annually. But so that that's the number one thing. Uh, I have used Section 8 to actually drive some of my rents where I couldn't get the rent that I wanted. I could get it from Section 8. And so that set a new bar. Uh, so I could then say, well, I've got X number of units rented at this rate. And so that's that's the new market for us. And mm-hmm. that that's worked actually pretty successfully in a couple of different complexes. Uh, on the downside, you know, you're dealing with people who sometimes have a mentality of uh, gimme, gimme. Mm-hmm. And, Entitlement. Exactly. And so I had one gal, she lived in the complex for four years, hadn't had a, a, a rate increase. This is when I had a, a property manager handling it. I do it myself right now and in this complex. And so I went to give her an increase and she's like, how dare you? I've been a good tenant. I've been here four years. <laughs> And I was like, well, you know, the costs have increased exponentially in these last four years. The taxes, the insurance, the water bill, my goodness. And uh, she couldn't understand how that economically worked. I was just benefiting because I was getting a taxing or a pay increase from her. So there is that entitlement mentality. Not everybody is as clean as somebody else. (laughs) Um, And that's a general statement. That's not specific. Because I have... I have some Section 8 folks that are fantastic, and they've been with us for three, four, five years. No problems, no issues, take great care of their place. So it comes down to screening. You're going to screen them the same as you are anybody else. You have the opportunity, go look at their, you know, their current uh, place. See how it compares to your expectations. Uh, we've had a few drug problems. We've had a f- few uh, prostitute problems uh, that have come out of that. and. When we terminate them, uh, they also tend to lose their Section 8 benefits. So it's a big loss to them. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of that hammer to hold over them to say, hey, you need to comply or else you're going to lose it. And sometimes that works. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't. What type of paperwork is involved to evict them knowing that there's, you know, the government paperwork that you you had to fill out to bring them in? Uh, In our jurisdiction, I would evict them the same as any other tenant. I would serve them notice and I would concurrently give a copy of that to their caseworker. Okay. And and sometimes that solves the problem. Uh, But uh, there's nothing special that I would do other than informing the caseworker of what we're doing. Got it. I want to learn more about Rents were driven by Section 8. You, know, you got rents at a certain price 
through Section 8 and then use that to increase prices for future residents. Will you elaborate more on that? Well, um, there's a certain level of risk that you're taking on when you accept somebody at that socioeconomic scale. And we need to mitigate that risk by the amount of both security deposit as well as the rent that we charge. We know on average, we're going to have a little more turnover costs when they leave. And so we set our rents accordingly, uh, where, for example, maybe the market's at uh, nine and a quarter, uh, I may charge 950. In some cases, now this varies from different jurisdictions, um, they will say, I can't move them in at that rate. That's above our rate. So we'll move them in at the nine and a quarter and concurrently give a, a 60 day notice of rent increase to what, what we're expecting. And in our jurisdiction, they'll allow that. Uh, I do some in another county where they don't allow that. But uh, so that, that's kind of a case by case. But yeah, we're able to uh, mitigate some of our costs. And given the level of, well, we, ju- we just don't have very much available in our market. We're very tight. And so if they want in, they're going to have to, you know, pay, pay whatever we're asking. So, uh, couple of years ago, it wasn't as tight and we were able to utilize that as a, as a means of setting the standard for the, that community. And I'm talking with other landlords, other er- folks in the area to, you know, have a pulse on what the market really is. And when we see it move, then those are usually the first ones that we bump up because uh, I, I can do them at pretty much any time of the year. I, the last three or four years, I have sent my notices in for January one rent increases. Some people get scared at that, say, well, they'll move out in the middle of winter. I find that Section 8 folks usually have kids. They're often in school. They don't want to move during the school year. By the time summer comes around, they've forgotten about it and they're moving on. Mm-hmm. So, Speaking of speaking about segueing, let's talk about students now. You rent to students. Do you do student housing where you rent out the like per bed? No. Okay. No, I, I, I limit it to per house and, uh, uh, or per unit. And there's a limited number based on the unit is how many they can have. And we inform them that they are all, everybody on the contract, they and their co-signer parents are individually and corporately responsible for everything. And we'll go after whoever is left, <laughs> so to speak, if there's anything remaining. And so, uh, yeah, we've not gone the the per unit or, or per bedroom rate route. Uh, we, we've kept it per unit. Okay. Keeps it cleaner for us. Well, then, then I'm going to shift gears into another line of questioning. And that is, you said you're managing it yourself. 87 units you're managing yourself? Uh, no. Uh, about, uh, I have a 42 unit mixed use and a 10 unit out in an area about 30 minutes from me. And I do have an on-site manager out there and she handles both of those, the day-to-day routine stuff. So I'm out in that area uh, generally twice a month. And, but the other ones, yeah, I take care of myself. Uh, The single family homes, you know, it's just about turnover and and we have low turnover. Um, Out of my 10 units, I turned one last year. I'm trying to think when the last turnover was, but most of these folks have been with me three to six years. So uh, those were new construction originally. So there's very little maintenance 
and uh, they're stable, solid, employed folks that uh, we just haven't had any issues with. So I don't need to pay somebody else to do what doesn't need to be done. Uh, I do have a little more to do in the 24 unit. I'll turn over, um, I think I turned over maybe five or six this last year. So even there, it's not high turnover, but it is a little more labor intensive just because of the uh, the clientele and their needs and what's going on there. So on average, I have about a third of my tenants in the apartments that will stay a year, uh, under two years. I have a third of my tenants that are there for two to five years and a third of my tenants stay longer than that. So uh, not a lot of turnover. So I don't find it necessary to pay somebody else to do stuff that doesn't really need to be done. How do you receive their rent checks? Mostly by mail. Uh, some, wow. Some, some by direct deposit. Huh. And uh, some of my higher end folks that have bank accounts will do, um, you know, bill pay and that kind of thing. I am looking at some of those online systems. Um, but some of our lower end folks, you know, they're going out and getting the money order. They don't have bank, bank accounts. And so, uh, but uh, we're pretty strict. They got to have it in by the fifth, the houses by the third. And uh, we apply late fees after that. And so some of that's tenant training, expectations, you know, as they first move in and get established. And I find that once we've got them established in, on a system, um, they're pretty timely overall. You should check out, if you ever wanted to try and automate that, check out Secure Pay One. Uh, the founder was on the show recently, and um, it seems like it makes a lot of sense for someone in, in your position who's getting the rents collected via mail, because I imagine that's that's got to be a process that you'd like to automate more. Yeah, I, I would. My son, uh, he actually bought a house when he was 15 and a half. That's a whole other story. But uh, he's now older. He's working in the <laughs> Port Portland area and uh, interviewed with Cozy. And mm, yeah, uh, yeah. Th that, that was fun to learn. You know, I, I fed him a bunch of my questions <laughs> and he was able to get those answers from the CEO there directly. So that was very fun. And uh, he didn't end up there. But uh, uh, we're definitely looking at those automated systems for the future. Yeah. Do you have a bookkeeper? No, I, I use uh, QuickBooks <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I get my rents, I input them, I go to the bank, it's done. You know, I, um, once you know the system, it, it doesn't take me that long. What's your focus for 2017? I am uh, consolidating and cleaning up. <laughs> uh, I, I accidentally, I say accidentally. Inadvertently bought a house in Florida a number of years ago, and that was a disaster. We'll, we'll follow up with that in, in your final questions, I think. But um, I'm, I've got that one listed. I'm getting that one off my plate. Um, last year, I got rid of another single property um, with a, a small partnership. I have one more small partnership that I'm going to hopefully clean up this year. And then uh, we're working on this property that we are cleaning up and short plaiting. That's my major project this year. Um, I'm not a guy going out there trying to buy everything that's available. I'm not trying to build a huge, you know, uh, bunch of bunch of units. So I tend to do things more one or two at a time. And I find when I get ready for the next step, the opportunities tend to show up. You get your money in line. You get your your team in line, and, uh, and we're ready to go. Uh, 
I just finished a, a 10 unit renovation last year and that went very well. It was very exciting, very fun. And, uh, that led into this, uh, short plat circumstance. I had to buy another house that had the easement and then we were able to do the, uh, the rest of the platting. So that's been a real process. It's been a year long, uh, working on that. We'll be submitting a boundary line adjustment today or tomorrow, I hope. Uh, so we're, we're right at that point of submitting stuff. So, uh, when that happens and then we'll put those up for sale, when the money comes in, we'll be looking to do a 1031 exchanging those into probably more multi-units. You started with partners. You still have some partners and a couple deals. And you said you have since exited out of most of your partnerships. How do you successfully exit out of a partnership and make sure both sides win? Sure. Great question. Um, each partnership is a little different. My primary partnership was those three, the three of us that, that bought in originally back in 1990. And the one partner uh, went broke and moved south and we bought him out uh, based on his need. Uh, the other partnership, uh, the, the final two of us continued on for 25 years. And uh, I bought him out two years ago and we had a, a fairly lengthy process of coming to terms with how we were going to divide, what the values were, what the terms were. In this case, he didn't want to cash out and I didn't have a cash out available for him. And so um, we had two cornerstone properties, the 24 and the 42 unit. And then we had a, several uh, duplexes and single families. The duplexes and single families were financed in our personal names, but run through the LLC for all the business aspects. So in the dividing of value, we used those properties in each of our names to create, you know, the basic split. And where there was some uh, not exact numbers, we applied that to the larger units and then uh, came up with a number, came up with a payment structure. And in this case, it was a graduated structure. So I started out with like 2000 a month, grew it to 25, that's three for X number of years. And then uh, uh, so it's, it's actually a 15 year process that will mm. probably finish off sooner. And especially if I do anything with those two cornerstone properties, then I have to give him the option to, be paid off or to continue on at that point, depending on his need. Okay. Very amicable in the end. We, there was some tense moments, you know, sure. you're dealing, you're dealing with money and dollars and security and, you know, but we'd worked together for 25 years, had a good level of trust. And so, uh, but we did draw it up. We had an attorney go over it. Uh, we had our realtor. She's got a copy of it as well. So, you know, there's some accountability there and, uh, so over the last two plus years, it's worked out very well for him. He's free to go visit his kids and grandkids and do some traveling. And uh, I've been free to handle the properties I see fit and do some financial things with them that probably wouldn't have done in the partnership. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? I'm going to call it know your AIT. <laughs> know, your, <laughs> <All right. laughs> know your levels of ability, interest, and tolerance. Mm. And, and then excel in the area of your strengths. Um, let me give you an example. I have a good friend who lives in Brazil. He's, he's a missionary down there. He owns an old Mercedes Benz. And we had the privilege of visiting his family there a number of years ago. And one day he's out underneath this old Mercedes. 
the hood is up. And so I'm leaning in and we're talking and he says, this old car's never given me a bit of trouble. I said, so what are you doing down there? And his response is, oh, I'm just replacing the transmission. <laughs> to which I respond to you, that's no trouble to me. <laughs> that's three grand worth of headache. <laughs> but Rick is a car guy. He can fix anything to him. That's no trouble. I have precious little ability with cars. I have less interest and I have no tolerance. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so you, you got to know your ability, got to know your interest, got to know your tolerance. So when somebody comes up to you and says, you're a landlord, I had never handled tenants, toilets and trash. How do you tolerate that? Well, they obviously don't have any interest. So they've never developed any abilities. And that leads to no tolerance for the tenants and all that goes with it. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a high AIT level when it comes to property. I have a high level of interest. Because of that, I've developed good abilities relative to property, to managing tenants. And of course, that leads to a higher level of, of tolerance. So somebody puts a hole in the wall, you know, I don't get mad. I get paid. Mm. We, we patch it. We repair it. We charge them for the work. It's a business relationship, not an emotional one. So know your areas of interest. Know your abilities and your talents and then exploit those areas. Bravo. Thank you for summarizing what I've been thinking, but haven't been able to put it so succinctly. So I certainly will use that and I will reference that you told me about AIT. There you go. You ready for the best ever lightning round? All right, let's go for it. First though, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. Adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever book you've read? Uh, the most life impacting book, I think, would certainly be the Bible. Another excellent book I've recently read was The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John Mann. Yep, that's a good one. And best ever listeners, just search Bob Berg and Joe Fairless and you'll listen to Bob's interview. He's actually been interviewed twice on this podcast. Excellent. Best ever deal you've done? I have to think about that, how I quantify the best deal. But here's a good example. For the dollars invested, I uh, bought a nice four bedroom cedar home, 2.4 acres in the city limits. Uh, I had it rented for 13 years, now doing a rehab where the tenants left us a hoarder's mess. It was a junkyard in the yard. The house was full of literally everything. I have 100 hours cleaning out the basement alone. Uh, but we're cleaning it up, remodeling it, doing a short plat to add three additional lots. When that's complete, I should realize about a 25 time uh, the investment originally. What's the biggest mistake you've made on a deal? Oh, the biggest mistake is too easy. <laughs> I bought a house across the country without proper due diligence. I live in Olympia, Washington, just south of Seattle, and I bought this in Central Florida. Uh, on the word of a well-intentioned friend, uh, true rents were 25% below expectation. Our property management structure fell through. Of course, the market crashed and the property, uh, I, I currently have it on the market. It will sell for about 75% of what I bought it for, and I will be happy it's gone. <laughs> and so the lesson is, do your own due diligence. Don't take the word of somebody else. That reminds me of a quote. I'm going to butcher it. But if a an enemy gives you Kool-Aid, you'll be okay. But if your best friend accidentally 
knocks over some poison and you drink it, then you're screwed. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't really matter the intention of the person. It's all about the end result. Exactly. Exactly. What's the best ever place the best ever listeners can get in touch with you? Um, you know, I'm on Bigger Pockets uh, pretty regularly. That's probably the best place through the forums and uh, connect with me there. Kurt, thank you for being on the show and sharing your story. We talked a lot about different things from the pros and cons of uh, having Section 8 residents. Pros, your rent's predominantly guaranteed, and you also use it to drive rents within your property uh, from the rents you were getting. And then cons, perhaps you've got some more issues and having a higher turnover cost uh, that's involved whenever they move out as well as the AIT, knowing what our AIT is, abilities, interests, and tolerance. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. 